Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or short story are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how these choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we get to hear from the lovely Elizabeth L. Silver, who is going to give us a sneak peek of her latest novel, The Majority, which releases in July. Congratulations on that, Elizabeth, and good morning. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Elizabeth is joining us from California. I'm actually not in Boston. I'm in Cyprus. So I'm talking to Elizabeth on basically the other side of the world, which is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, Elizabeth L. Silver is the author of the forthcoming novel, The Majority, as well as the memoir, The Tincture of Time, a memoir of medical uncertainty, and the novel, The Execution of Noah P. Singleton. Her work has been published in seven languages and optioned for film. Also an attorney, Elizabeth has written for the Washington Post, New York Times Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, and McSweeney's, and she currently teaches creative writing at the UCLA Writers Program. She is the founder and director of Onward Literary, and Onward Literary looks like it does, does a lot of things that help writers, so you might want to check out their website if you do a search for them, and she lives in Los Angeles with her family. All right, Elizabeth, can you give us an overview of your novel so that when we uh, listen to these first pages, we have a little bit of context? Absolutely, absolutely. So the majority is an imagining of the life of a first fictional Supreme Court Justice of America. And so it follows the the uh, fictional character of Sylvia Olin Bernstein or the contemptuous SOB on her rise to power um, over 50 years of American history um, from the late 1940s to the 1980s. Um, and in many ways as she's ascending to what I think of as kind of a modern throne in America and is certainly quite a, in the news today quite a bit. Um, and so the passages that I'm going to read um, are just the opening few pages of the book as we get to know um, as we get to know Sylvia. It's written in the voice of it's written in her voice and it really takes the form of kind of a fictional uh, memoir. So she's telling her story for the first time really in her own words instead of other people's words put on her. I just love that she's got this name, this nickname, the contemptuous SOB, which of course <laughs> reminds us of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, but the, the way that you're able to play with that is amazing. Okay, let's hear these pages. All right. So it starts off with um, these few words. Found in the desk of the late Sylvia Olin Bernstein, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Half of the United States is waiting for me to die. The other half stands by, candles in hand, praying for me to hang on. At least that's what they tell me. At least that's what they say. But people never really want what they think they want. Every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from October through April, the main doors of the Supreme Court open at 8. There are only 50 seats available for the general public, and by 9.30 a.m., those eager visitors who waited outside for hours will have secured most of them. Sometimes, when nobody's there, I walk into the main courtroom to sit in the back of the gallery. The perspective is different, almost more ominous. 
From there, I can see four marble columns standing tall before deep mahogany curtains edged in gold. When I was younger, I used to stare at the curtains in pictures and later in person, sometimes wanting to hide in them. Now I know better than to hide. On the days we have argument, a court crier pushes the buzzer, warning the crowd that there are five minutes to prepare and take a seat. The nine of us wait in the robing room backstage where no one can visit, beginning the process of coming out into the courtroom. We have a private pregame ritual, a rotating handshake among all nine of us as if to say, yes, we are all in this together. Everyone takes part in this tradition now between six men and three women who sometimes like each other and sometimes hate each other when the robe is on and tolerate each other when it's off. The court crier opens his mouth. Oye, oye, oye. We walk out of the robing room to take our places behind the specific chairs at the bench. Mine is marked with a tiny gold plaque carved with the initials SOB. I take my seat. The Chief Justice glances to either side and picks up his gavel, slamming the wood with a single pound. It pierces the silence as I scan the gallery. My eyes are old, though. They don't always see what's in front of them. My hair has faded from the yellow, stubborn blonde of my youth, and I've lost some of my height. Though, having started at 5 feet 11 inches, I'm still taller than most of the men who have surrounded me for decades. As arguments open, all eyes are on me wondering what I'm thinking. But it's my own eyes, still a clear light blue that are the first to reveal the truth. If you look closely enough, you might have to reconsider everything you know about me, everything you thought you knew about the first female Supreme Court Justice of the United States of America, the Honorable Sil Justice Sylvia Olin Bernstein. The first time I sat in that chair, I felt an unnecessary distance from a breathing life, as if I were meant to be protected by an older code. Outside, people waved signs of praise, of hate, of hope that the contemptuous SOB might make a change. I hated the name. Just call me bitch, I wanted to say. I'm nobody's son. You see, everyone thinks that I just, that I broke the rules, but I didn't. Not really, I just oiled them up a bit for everyone else. But biographers want to present me like that, pretty but rough, demanding but kind, a model for how to get to the top as a woman and be remembered in history with elegance and idealism. This is the true story, though. I wouldn't be here if I had the luck of my cousin Mariana or if I'd fought the fight like my friend Linda. Still, history chooses whom to crown an iconoclast, whether they deserve it or not. History is only as good as the historians, and I'm no longer trusting them to tell my story. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, were these always your first pages? Did you always start with a kind of prologue, basically? Um, I had, I started with the lines, um, uh, the um, half of the United States is waiting for me to die. And I was really interested in that idea of like, we're living in a, a world and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive when I started this book. Um, and and it's been a kind of, I've been working on it for five, six years. And so um, I, I was fascinated with this idea of so much of our laws and so much of our world is based on the life of one person, um, which seems so counter to everything that we are in America. And so that was really fascinating to me. And, and, and being so divided, it was also something that um, intrigued me. I wanted to know about the person behind all this, you know, take away the politics, let's talk about the people. And so um, that line 
was actually the first line and it, it, over many drafts it went to the middle it went to the back it, it found its way and then ultimately came right back to the beginning um and so um it was always kind of that opening idea of this is this is where i am but the idea of her looking back um came and went for sure several times I mean, it sets up it sets up a really good reminiscent narrator. Um, a lot of kind of life stories do this, and and so you are mimicking the memoir very well, the memoir form, um, and it adds stakes. I feel to the whole book because we know where we're going to end. We know that her life is going to be important. We know that there's we know why we're watching basically, and she's writing from a point. Uh, great change for her and for the country. And you do get in that kind of split of the country right in those lines. And then later here, she's like, I'm going to tell my own story. People think that they know my story, but they don't. So the reasons why she is speaking um, or writing this, uh, that's kind of the idea, right? That she's writing it. Mm -hmm. um, it just gives pressure and tension and interest to the whole thing that I think sets it up really well. It's, it's really, it feels to me very necessary, especially for a reminiscent narrator. Um, you. And then as you continue, so it's interesting, you kind of scope out a little bit. We get the court. Uh, we get how she had watched the court when she was younger and kind of imagined herself there. And so I think we can empathize with that view. I think everyone kind of has have seen things in which they imagine themselves living or achieving certain something. So that's it's, it's a very empathetic stance. Um, and yet we get this very kind of regal um, place that we've all seen in television one way or another. Uh, and and so we get her almost her throne before we kind of dip into her. And it's a really interesting move. You have this line um, as arguments open, all eyes are on me wondering what I'm thinking, but it's my own eyes, still a clear light blue that are the first to reveal the truth. If you look closely enough, you might have to reconsider everything you know about me. So that of course is kind of the reason for the whole story. But for me, I also felt a kind of swooping in of intimacy there. Um, and even of, of, I don't know, vulnerability. I'm not even quite sure. I looked at those lines again. I wasn't quite sure, but it feels like we enter her even more there. Um, we're kind of sensitive, like how do I frame this woman for readers? How do I, how do I, you know, this is a big personality. She had a very public personality. Even though it's not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's it's basically after her, but then I have to make her human. So how did you work with the tension between the two? And which was easier for you? Oh my goodness. I love, I love how how you were looking at those opening pages in your description and, and um analysis of it, analysis of it. Thank you. Um you know, in terms of the tension, I, I, you know, when when I think about opening pages, when I'm like when I'm, when I'm teaching or when I'm working with an individual writer, um, I think that you you nailed it. That idea of we need to create tension and we need to create a hook from the beginning. And I think when you are when you're talking about a reminiscent narrator, you're talking you're looking at somebody's full life story, because that that's what this kind of a book is. There could be a book that's you know about full full on plot, and we're setting up the conflict between you know whether it's people to people, whether it's people to climate, whatever. Um, but when, when it's when it's a personal narrative, yeah, what is that tension going to be? And I think by placing um, by removing kind of some of the so-called obvious tension, you get to you get to 
focus on the, we know that this is a story about a life, right? Because we know that we're, we know where we're winding up because I'm starting it there. Um, I'm starting with, okay, you know that this is what's, we, we, the premise is here. This is a person who's gonna be the first woman on the court. You can read it in the back, in the, in the jacket. You can also read it in the, in the prologue. So we're gonna get that out of, out of, out of you know, the way. There's not gonna be a question of whether or not she's going to be on the court. It's gonna be, she is going to be on the court. But how does she get there and what does that mean and what is that tension going to be that places us there and so um by putting in the characters we also see okay i know i'm going to be talking about you know these characters named mariana and linda who are they um or we're going to talk about um a mother in there we're going to talk about you know what what is her her marital relationships going to be her um education and all of these things um we're getting the idea that there's tension between the other justices um when they're talking about we, we like each other we tolerate each other what does that mean and so i think putting all of those elements into the first few pages does does set up some sort of a conflict in an in a in a narrative that might be more about the person's life than about kind of external um you know war, war for example um and and that 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 can create a conflict where um internally where externally it might not necessarily be as obvious even though it is uh, even though it, it is there um and i think your other comment about kind of the eyes and you know obviously when we're it's a it's a written medium and so we we don't have the cameras right in on on an actor being able to to really um expose um vulnerability and so i think that as writers we like to do that through the physicality as well and we have the luxury of getting to explore that and we get the luxury of getting to explore the world through our characters eyes but also and, and it, depending on what perspective you're doing and so this is first person and so as a result um, we only are seeing the world through her eyes. And, and so I think that we have to get really close in on it. And I think there is that question of what, what you see and what other people see is not the same thing. And I think that's something that's a really interesting question to explore. Um, how we view the world and how the world views us um, don't always line up. And that's another conflict and that's another source of tension. And um, I think as people, um, particularly as writers, we're putting work out there, you know, the minute you put a book out there, it's no longer yours, it's, it's the readers and um, everyone is going to have a different experience of, of consumption of reading and um, I'm, I'm really fascinated with that. And something else I wanted to point out, and this might be a little basic for some listeners, but not basic for others. So if you look at the middle paragraph of the second page of her prologue, she gives a description of what she looks like. Um, and she says, my hair is faded from the yellow stubborn blonde of my youth, and I've lost some of my height, though having started at five feet, 11 inches, I'm still taller than most of the men who have surrounded me for decades. And then her eyes are still that clear light blue that I just said. Um, notice that this isn't just just I'm blonde and I'm tall. <laughs> um, this is not just, you know, kind of rote outside descriptions. These are descriptions that are bent by how a particular persona wears them. And that is always the best kind of uh, description. So my hair has faded from the yellow stubborn blonde, which I think is actually interesting because I have a feeling that also describes her. Uh, <laughs> and then it really doesn't matter if she's five feet, 11 inches or five feet, two inches. I say that because that's how tall I am. Um, it I'm really five <laughs> Go for short people. I really, it really makes no difference except 
in relationship to the people that she works with. Um, because height in this case is often, it can be uh, close to power. And so how tall she is in relationship to the people that she works with is really the important part. And that's where she notes there. So, and it's dropped in so well, and we just kind of get a glimpse and you just do it with a few strokes. We don't need too much in order to kind of get a sense of who she is. So when I read that too, I realized, well, I knew I was like, okay, this is not, this is Ruth Bader Ginsburg but it's also not Ruth Bader Ginsburg because Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not the first female justice, Sandra Day O'Connor was. And, and yeah. so that description actually fits Sandra Day O'Connor more. Yes. Um, and then uh, her name, Sylvia Bernstein, for some reason I, I typed in the name and I realized that Sylvia Bernstein was also a civil rights activist who worked for Bill Clinton. Um, so <laughs> I did was like, does she Which I did not even know actually. <laughs> actually a pretty interesting uh, personality because she belonged to the communist party and a lot of people were suspicious of her. Anyway, wow. you just you with that now. now you can play with that. Um, so, you are attempting to bring to life. Well, why did you bring those two together? Did you feel like I can't just do Ruth? I need to. I need to expand this. I need more wiggle, wiggle room with that. What was your approach to that? Um, that's a great question, and I struggled with this for quite a long time. Um, I, I, I was initially Ruth Bader Ginsburg being an idol of mine and so many people's. I mean, she's the person that I initially wanted to explore in fiction. Um, and being being a Jewish lawyer myself, that was the person who I had the closest connection to on a personal level. Um, my mother always used to say she reminded her of her grandmother in Brooklyn. Um, and so in terms, I love opera, you know, all of these little details that, you know, I have Holocaust, I, I come from a Holocaust surviving family. And so there's a lot of these influences. And so if there's, you know, th this idea of representation. So in terms of representation on the court, that would be the person, not just because she's a notorious RBG, but because of personal connections or not, not but personal um, details that I I would relate to in terms of representation. Um, that said, no, she's not the first person, she was not the first woman on the court. And so, you know, the book started off initially, like an it was inspired kind of loosely by her life, but um, what I had to do halfway through is I really had to separate the two because Sylvia is not Ruth, Ruth is not Sylvia, um, but she is clearly a jumping off point to start this. Um, and, you know, I love that you pulled in on the, the physical description and um, I was really stuck. And I was reading so many biographies of Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Sotomayor, you know, all of the female Supremes. And I had to take a step back because I was kind of going so deep into that research um, rabbit hole that I, I, I it was, it, I was stuck. Um, and so a good writer friend of mine made this recommendation saying, like, just change the way she looks. And I thought, so simple. But if I change how she looks, then there is just a distinct separation. And she gets to really become her own character. And she becomes her own self. And so the book really veers quite substantially from the lives of of the Supreme Court, of the, the women on the Supreme Court, it just kind of is a clear jumping off point. And so um, there are little, you know, for any sort of SCOTUS junkies out there, there are little like, you know, Easter eggs in the book 
to say like, okay, this is, you know, yeah, she looks a little bit like Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, she has the kind of nickname and, and religious background of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, there's some thoughts in, in there that I've read about Sonu Sotomayor. There's a certain experiences from, you know, there's a little bit of everything. My own experiences, other people I know. And so she really is, um, you know, I think the initial connection will be RBG, but she is really this amalgamation of so many women and really her own beast in and of herself. Um, and so uh, yeah, that, that physical description was one of the first things that really helped distance me. Um, and I love that you kind of pointed out the fact that um, she does have some physical characteristics of, of uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. And I think also, you're saying you're 5'2 and I'm 5'1. And I think that height, I, I'm very fixated on height. I, yeah. I really like being short. I, I really like being short. My husband's 6'3 and he has like, we always talk about how different of an experience of life he has. And I think height makes such a huge difference because it is part of that, the way the world sees you um, and the way you see the world, you know, and, and it, having a whole foot of difference does change your perspective. Um, and, and, particularly at a time, you know, in the 20th century, when um, there was so much misogyny, when there was not that much, there were not women in these positions of power. So if you were a short woman, that's even um, yet another thing that might be holding you back, you know, you're, you're cute always, in, instead of anything else, or you're, you know, feisty is the word that I think gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and your eyes are literally the one thing that doesn't change as you get older. Your hair changes, your height even changes. You you shrink. You you you're, you're you know you you get freckles and sunspots and what have you. You lose your hair. Your hair color changes, but your eyes don't. And I think yeah. that's really something to to kind of um, to focus on in that in that respect. What, and did you always know you wanted to do first person? I did. Well, the voice kind of just came to me in first person, and I feel a little bit more comfortable in first person. The book that I'm writing right now is in third person, so I really want to challenge myself. I've been writing a lot of short stories in third person, too, but um, mostly I feel very comfortable in the first person. And so it was it was very clear. Now, it has its pros and its cons, certainly. Um, it's It's wonderful because you can really get into one person's character and their perspective and see the world, but you really can't focus on, you know, you can't get into the perspective of other characters. And so we know that this, that means this is going to be one person's story. Right. And um, I mean, it really means it's interesting because there, there have been a lot of novels lately in which writers have done fictional biographies or fictional memoirs. Uh, they haven't, they've, they haven't changed the name of the person and they really just, it's really just a portrait of a real life person. Yeah. And I myself have, have worked on a novel in which I based on a real life person, but I wanted to, I changed her name because I didn't feel that I had the right to represent her. I just didn't, maybe I'm too Midwestern for that, but I just didn't, I was just <laughs> like, I just, I just didn't feel and I and I also think I wanted the freedom. Uh, so, and it, I mean, how was it like for you? Did you already know from the from the start, like, well, I'm not doing Ruth anyway, or it's just easier for me not to do this, or I'm more comfortable this way? Did you think about that? Well, it, I think that it boiled down to it, she her it really being the inspiration, and and it not being so. It's you know, I think. 
um, you know, Curtis Sittenfeld has Rodham and American Wife. And Rodham is very clearly, she is writing yeah. about Hillary Clinton. I mean, a fictionalization of what life could be. But in American Wife, it's a complete, in, it's inspired by Laura Bush, but it's not Laura Bush at all. It's a whole different character. And, and, um, and I loved that book. I actually have not read Rodham um, yet because I, I wanted to become, I wanted to wait until I was finished with this novel uh, in, in entirety. Um, but I absolutely loved American Wife. And so, you know, I, I, I think of it less as like, let me fictionalize a real person. And it's not that it's let me come up with a completely new person, but inspired by somebody's famous somebody's life and um and i you know i think at the beginning like there'll be things that you can say okay this happened in both people's lives and i remember i, I wrote i had this huge memo that i wrote to my editor um about kind of like fact and fiction like what what happened what is sob and what is rbg you know what is sandra day o'connor what is what is real and what's not and um and it you know apart from just a few kind of uh frameworks it's it really is Sylvia's story and takes off very, very, very quickly. And so um, once, once, you know, once you realize, okay, this is the inspiration point. Now let's follow this woman. Then I think it frees, it frees you to really just enjoy a novel. I hope. <laughs> um, and um, just read about this woman. And by that kind of extension, um, this time period in American history. So did you, when you sent that to your editor, did, did, did she ask for that? Or did you just feel, I want her to know these things? What is real and what isn't? Um, we, it, it was born from a discussion that we had together. And so I don't remember who said it first. I, she might've asked me for it, for that memo. Um, but, but it was also, it was less about really her life, but more about, there's a lot of cases that I cite, you know, and, and so an institution. So Sylvia goes to Harvard Law. Okay, well, that's real. You know, she's on the Supreme Court. Well, that's real. But what about these other cases? Okay, well, we know that Brown versus the Board of Education, that's a real case. But what about, you know, there's this one, the, the, the issue that she really takes on is pregnancy discrimination. Um, and by that nature, kind of exploring that. And so what I, I kind of created a rubric for myself as I was writing. And it was basically the following. Um, the cases are real. The institutions are real um, if they are serving as setting, right? And so if it's the background. But if it's something that Sylvia or, or you know, the other characters, um, the fictional characters, which because everybody is fictional in the book, there's, you know, she doesn't interact with any real people um, from history. Um, then uh, it's made up because I didn't want to, I, I didn't feel as though I could have a fictional character interact with a real case or a real, a real people. It, so those are, those are inspired by, they might be inspired by real cases or real things that happen, but they're completely made up. Yeah. Yeah. And then I did want to ask about one other specific line. It's at the end of the first paragraph, you say, but people never really want what they think they want. Mm -hmm. And that, felt like a line that set up a lot and I assume <laughs> that that is going to be expanded upon and continued throughout the rest of the novel am I wrong about that <laughs> um I think implicitly you're right um I think that you know it, it's 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 an abstract kind of statement that is explored in various forms and so I would say you know she talks a lot about regret um 
and what regret means and whether or not that's real, but like it, it, it kind of pinpoints a few specific ones. So it's another for, source of kind of tension when we're thinking about how, how you're writing. Um, okay, you know, early on she talks about, okay, well, I have, you know, three great regrets in my life. This is one of them. And so in that sense, you know that, okay, there's two more coming. What are they gonna be? And what does that mean? Um, and I think in that sense, it's this idea that I think we all have in life, whether, regardless of where you are, what you do, um, where you live, um, we think that we want something and we don't always know what that is until we get it. And so it, it, I think it, it's pushing that, that, um, that question of, of uh, identity and um, desire um, beyond just, you know, I want to be a writer when I grow up. I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a teacher. I want to be an inventor. Um, but, you know, I think that we, we live in, at least in America, we live in a, a society where it's like, we're, we're always like shooting, you know, shoot for the stars. We, I have two little kids and it's always like, you can, you can be anything. And I, and I, I think that's a great thing. Um, but I think that we don't always know what that means. And so we don't always know what we want. We think that we do. And then we get right. it. Or we don't get it and we're always questioning wait was it is this everything it was cracked out to be yeah so it's, it makes for a wonderful truism i think it sets up a lot of themes in the novel and what's interesting is that though she's kind of at that moment pushing it away from her but people never really want what they think they want she's not admitting to her regrets right there but i knew i was like ah she's talking about herself <laughs> As we all do. And then I'm assuming at the end here, she she brings up her cousin, Mary Anna, and her friend, Linda. I'm assuming that they also take a large role in the book. They do. Yes, they they take up extremely large roles. Um, and in many ways, they are they serve as um, her confidants, her best friends, her surrogate family um, for the duration, really, um, uh, of the book. And 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 and. and and our foils and friends and, um, you know, just really important figures in her life. And have, they take on their own really incredible journeys as well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the novelists I work with, I say, well, don't mention names unless they have a physical presence on the page because we're not going to remember mm -hmm. their name. But yours here, I feel like you lay them out in a way that is patient and confident. And I felt like, no, I think we're going to, I think we're going to remember these names. Um, and so that, that it's going to build on, and she seems very impressed by them and almost feels that they had <laughs> in some ways better lives. And she just lucked out and became the iconoclast. But I, I think that that sets up well. So then we're looking for them throughout the novel. It sounds like we're also looking for these three great regrets. So you're constantly launching questions for the reader that you're going to follow up later to keep us going as we move into the first chapter then do you i'm assuming you do a time jump backwards yes so the book is set up in four parts um so it has kind of that opening prologue um and then it's set up in in four different time frames so while it kind of covers the the, the large span of the 20th century or the second half of the 20th century um it, it takes place you know in um part one is brooklyn 1949 and then part two is is boston 1959 uh, you know so it's just her childhood then it's law school then um and then you know and then it's um uh and then you're after after um massachusetts and then she's in um the next the next session is uh 
you know, it, it, oh, the four different sections. The next session is um, New York in 1973-74. Then the next session is DC in 1986. You know, and so we see these four particular moments. And so you know, well, well, you can't when you're covering a full life story and you're doing fictional memoir, you can't cover everything. And and I, I I've I've published a memoir. I teach memoir. And so one thing I always tell my students as well is, okay, a memoir is not a biography. There there are different there are different forms of art and they're different literary projects. Um, in a memoir, you're picking a particular theme or you're taking a particular moment in time and you're really exploring that and you're analyzing it. And so in this sense, um, this book picks four particular moments in her life or particular time frames in her life to to show and depict a full life, um, to show how she became this person, how she got to um, be the first woman on the court. And so it covers those four particular moments, you know, childhood, um, when certain things happen, law school, early motherhood and appointment. Great. I was going to ask you how you covered time because this is a long life mm -hmm. and you can't just slowly like do one thing after another, treating, treating every moment in time with the same amount of attention or even treat all the moments of time. So to choose certain heights of moments in certain years is which it sounds like you do and kind of compress them and then make jumps in between them sounds like the perfect way to handle that and the fact that you've written a memoir before probably helped you do it right and helped you approach this as a memoir i would expect um i don't want to have to let her go i'm but i'm gonna ask her one more question and then she can answer that about the memoir. Um, I'm going to have to let her go, and I need to get everyone back to their desks so that you all can do your start your writing and do the time jumps and and make your choices that you need to make. You can find our full schedule at Substack on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of episodes um, there, including our last two really big writing challenges. A lot of authors and writers giving really wonderful advice. I suggest you look back on our Substack page to find them. And you can also find them on our podcast uh, um, platform, any podcast platform that you choose. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so we can find other listeners. Okay, Elizabeth, you can answer that now because I always do this. I ask someone's a question and then I have to break it off. So I always just, okay. Did, did having written a memoir help you with these first pages and or no, or, if you were to give advice to people writing a book like this, would you suggest read a lot of first, read a lot of memoirs, read a lot of, you know, how, what would you suggest about how to begin a book like this? Um, great questions. I, I, you know, I, though I've written a memoir that had no bearing really on, on, I think how I wrote this book, because I write memoir and I write novels the exact same way. It's just one is, I'm venting facts and one is not, one is pulling from my own life. And so I, I approach crafting the, the, the books in almost identical way. Um, it's really, I, I write very fragmentarily in, in scenes um, and uh, scenes and themes and have to kind of jigsaw puzzle things together later on. Um, but no, it didn't, it didn't make one difference whether or not it, at least I don't think so. I mean, although everything's on, you know, who knows, it's all in the, the lived experience. So maybe it did help, but I do approach them in the same way. So if you were to tell someone, okay, this is what you should do for, in your first pages, just in general, what would you tell them? I would say that your first pages 
might not be what your first pages are. Um, I think that, you know, getting down on the page, you know, some sort of idea of where you're starting um, is important. And it can be, it can be an idea, it can be an image, it can be a thought, it can be a dialogue right in the middle, drop you right in a scene. But, um, you know, it, it's something that really should kind of encapsulate what the book's about, but it might not be what you think your first pages are. It might be some scene that's stuck right there in the middle of the book, or maybe it's your ending and your ending should be your beginning. And I think that's something to think about. I real, I'm realizing this in, in retrospect, you know, but um, with, my, with my first novel, um, it, it's a very, I did the, the, a similar kind of approach in which we know how it's going to end, but that's not the point. We, the point is the character, the point is the narrative and the point is kind of getting there. And so I think that's something to really think about is not sitting down to write your first pages and knowing that those are your first pages, but knowing and accepting and realizing that your real first pages of that final draft might be somewhere, anywhere in that full manuscript. Yeah. Readers learn the books that we're writing as they read, and we learn the books that we're writing as we write them. And we oftentimes wish that weren't the case. <laughs> <laughs> but so perfectly said. We don't, I, I'm not one of those people who knows exactly, I have a general idea of what I'm doing, but I need to write it to fully see it. Okay, well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. I just love that you had time to talk with us. And I'm very excited about this book. Um, it seems like something right down my alley. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to love it, too. So thank you for your time. And I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much for having me. 